Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Pastor Kevin, thanks for the opportunity to uh, share again. Hello, CCC. Uh, it's good to be with you. And I want to, to say, first off, before we get to our material for today, I want to thank you guys for standing with us, uh, for praying for us when we were um, in the middle of the war, and, uh, then, and praying us back. And speaking of which, um, I would like to... Um, uh, Maybe I'm pressing the wrong thing. Yep. Boy, it's hard to get all this in sync. I just wanted to share with you uh, quickly uh, about that experience because some of you have maybe not seen it on TV or heard it on radio or read it in print media or whatever. Uh, on October the 7th, we flew into a war that was three hours and 2,500 watt rockets old when we hit the ground. It started, uh, we, we were already nine hours over the Atlantic uh, and when we hit the ground, they had blacked out our uh, Wi-Fi. No one knew anything about it. Uh, we walked through the airport and uh, did not know what in the world to make of the signs that we were seeing as we processed through passport control and picking up our luggage and what have you. We looked at those. We noticed that they were in a weird place. They were just like propped up temporarily on a chair on the floor. And we looked at each other and said, well, I guess they're just having safety drills. Yeah, not the brightest bulb on the tree, right? And uh, bulbs on the tree. And so we um, got in our taxi and we're headed 20 miles north of Tel Aviv to a town called Netanya, where we were going to stay in a hotel for a couple of days, rest up, wait, uh, waiting for uh, a group, a very large group, two buses full, and then another group after that. So two groups back to back. And um, we found out from our taxi driver that we were in, had flown into the middle of a war. And I thought the taxi driver was just kidding. So the taxi driver turned on the radio and then switched channels multiple times. And in Hebrew, it was all really clear that there had already been 2,500 rockets shot from the Gaza Strip uh, by the um, group called Hamas, which you have now become very familiar with, with the evening news, etc. And um, so we went on to the hotel thinking, well, this is just a flare-up and it's going to pass because these things happen uh, from time to time and it, it, it'll be over in a matter of days. Our groups will come. It will all be good. First group canceled. Then second group canceled. By that time, we're into the middle of the uh, first week that we were there. And on that Wednesday, I believe that it was October the 11th, uh, the Hamas high leadership uh, called for a worldwide jihad against all Jews and Christians. So we began to seriously look for a way out. And um, we found this odd phone number that showed up some kind of miraculous weird, unexplained way in my wife's phone, called it and got a guy from India who was representing some big fat cat who had bought up all the airline tickets of airlines that were still flying in and out of Israel. No American airlines were, so our tickets that we already had were no good. And um, we talked to this guy in the middle of the night for three and a half hours, and he promised that he was for real. He was representing Bluebird Airlines. Can I see the number of hands? 
Yes, I counted that very quickly. No one, including us, had ever heard of Bluebird Airlines. So we did some uh, fact-checking on them, found out that they owned a total of four jets. So we figured this guy has a thick Indian accent. We figured we have been scammed for $11,400 for one-way tickets back to the United States. We got to the airport and found out there really was a Bluebird airline. And so um, here's, I think we've got this, yes, here's a picture of us in the uh, airport. And we are waiting to go to Cyprus, the next closest place. Uh, It's an island off the Mediterranean coast of Israel, Lebanon. And uh, we flew into Cyprus. And then we went backward to Qatar. It's a little tiny country on the Persian Gulf, across the Persian Gulf from Iran. You've heard of Iran, right? Yeah, the number one supporter of Hamas. Qatar is the number two supporter of Hamas. I think they're in competition. But we spent a little time in the uh, airport at Doha, Qatar. And after about a seven-hour layover, we got on a plane and we uh, flew 15 hours nonstop to Chicago, back in the United States. Thanks for your prayers and concern. We are so appreciated. We had a a big uh, concern for these two ladies who had volunteered to help us with that two bus, that really large group, had uh, flown from Cincinnati uh, to Israel, and their families were very concerned for them. Here's uh, a son of one and a son of the other one, and we were able in in Chicago, they drove up from Cincinnati to hand them off to their uh, families. So mission accomplished on that end. And after about a three, three and a half hour layover, uh, we got on the plane and uh, flew the couple of hours to Springfield, Missouri, which you know very well, right? And so there's this big kind of lobby area after you come through that last set of security doors. And here's our family meeting us. And we were so excited to see them after 67 and a half hours in transit. Three days in transit. But it wasn't just our family. There were scores of people there who had made homemade signs and bought balloons and had flags and just welcomed us in the most incredible manner. It was, it was overwhelming. There were a number of people from CCC who were there and whose necks we got to hug and they got to welcome us home and we were grateful for that. Here's a picture of the hall and the larger group. You're familiar with it. You've been there to to pick up folks. And then there's our full family there and somebody volunteered to take a picture. So we are really grateful to be back and to be here in the middle of Advent, actually. Um, This is the second Sunday of Advent, so it's only appropriate. It's traditional to read some of the Christmas story. And um, I thought I would segue that in, in, into that by sharing with you a um, wonderful message on a kitchen towel of my wife's. And it says, if there had been three wise women, well, you would have, they, they would have asked directions and they would not have been late. 
They'd arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stables, made a casserole, bought practical gifts, and then there would already be peace on earth. So happy Advent. Happy Hanukkah also. This is the third day of Hanukkah. Fourth day starts at sundown tonight. So you have to remember to light four candles for tonight, okay? Just making sure everybody's squared away on that. I'd like to take a look at the um, Christmas story, uh, the birth narrative, to start off our study of Scripture today. Um, and I want, to, uh, I want us to focus, yeah, it's always imp- important to focus on Jesus and to focus on God because he's the, the hero of every story and he's the, the, the spotlight is always to be on him. But I, I want to focus in addition to that a little bit on parts of the narrative that we don't usually focus on. You know, things like place names and region names um, because they're hard to pronounce and they're not usually in our language and you got to get on to the really important spiritual part of the Bible, right? You know, the part that applies to me. Um, but could, could we just take a pit stop there for a moment? That Joseph went up from a city uh, uh, from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, place name, city of Nazareth, to Judea, a region to the south that includes the city of David that is called Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus is born. It's because he was of the house and and family of David. In order to register um, uh, along with Mary, his wife, who was engaged to him, better translated betrothed, they're not exactly the same. For example, betrothal involves a contract, and if that contract is broken, then there's a divorce that has to happen. You read about this in the Bible. He decided he would uh, divorce her privately. Remember this in the Gospel of Matthew? Um, But with engagement, I mean, at the very best, the ring gets returned. Yes? No, No need for... A, a, a legal document and a procedure uh, of divorce. So it came about while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, wrapped uh, cloths and wrapped him, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, right? This is uh, Nazareth where the announcement came from the angel um, Gabriel. Uh, Here is a picture of larger Nazareth. Nazareth is the largest Arab town in in the land of Israel. There are 220,000 Arabs who live in Nazareth. All of them are Israeli citizens. There are hundreds and thousands of Arabs throughout the land of Israel who are native Israelis. They have, they have legal rights. They vote. They serve in the army. They can become members of the Knesset or the parliament of, of Israel. So the Middle East and, and Israel in particular is a really interesting place that we know surprisingly little of because we're not educated about it. For those of us in the body of Christ who have a vested interest in the land of the Bible, though it is really important for us to, um, to drill down and know these realities. So the Church of the Annunciation, the little squatty white building that has the gray conical, conically shaped 
roof. This is the church of the Annunciation marking the spot where the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said that she would be the vessel through which the Christ, the Messiah, would be born. If you look more uh, broadly, um, Bethlehem or Nazareth was not nearly this size. It was only Three, four hundred in Jesus' day in number. Now it's 220,000. But if you go to the lip of the ridge that Nazareth is on, you can look further to the north and you see the valley called the Beit Natofa Valley. It's mentioned in the Bible. So also is the most famous city in the Beit Natofa Valley. There's a village right here on the northern lip, the northern edge of the valley, and it's called Cana or Cana in Hebrew. It's a place where Jesus worked his first miracle. He turned the water into wine, or if you're a teetotaler, the wine into water, right there at Cana, right here on the edge of the picture. The next picture is a picture of Bethlehem. So he went, Joseph went and Mary went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This church that's shaped like a cross uh, it's a Byzantine period, 4th century church built, built by Queen Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great. And this marks the spot where Jesus was born. So Bethlehem is also a small town, four or 500 people in Jesus' day. And it's right on the lip of the Judean wilderness. You see where modern Bethlehem ends here? The Judean wilderness, and this was the domain of shepherds, where shepherds would be shepherding their flocks. This is in the rainy season, so it's all nice and green, even out in the Judean wilderness that is usually not used for uh, farming, for produce. So that's, those are some of the realities. These are real places. This is not make-believe. This is not King Arthur. There are no knights of the round table. There's no Snow White or seven dwarfs or whatever politically correct term that we use now. Um, let's continue our story. We get, so we've got Nazareth, and we've got Bethlehem, and we've got Judea in Luke's account. In Matthew's account, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So this is an angel saying this. Arise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Do you notice that here, he's the, the angel sent by God, messenger of God, delivering a message from God. He says, go back to the land of Israel. And so we're getting the language of covenant, the language of the land of promise, the original biblical language for this, um, this area of the world. Take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. And then he arose, and this is Matthew's commentary. This, he's telling the story of the return from Egypt. And he says, so he took the child and his mother, and he came, he came to the land of Israel. Now we have a divinely inspired gospel writer using this covenantal biblical language for the location that Jesus would be raised, would grow up in, and would do his entire ministry in. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, uh, that's a kind of a Hellenized or a Greek form of Judah, Yehudah, uh, part of the tribal allotment that was given to the tribe by that name, Judah or Yehudah. Flipping back to the Gospel of Luke now, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is only five or six miles from Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. And so there's a practice that uh, people would take their firstborn child and take that child and dedicate that child to the Lord at the temple and offer up the sacrifice of two turtle doves. And so 
there's a man named Simeon there, and he's a prophet. So we've got an angel, and we've got a gospel writer, and now we've got a divinely inspired prophet, and his words are recorded in the gospel of Luke. He said to Mary, the mother of Jesus, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and for the rise of many in Israel. Again, the use of a covenantal term, a biblical term, which is to be contrasted with what's popular in that day. You know that we, we don't necessarily go with what's popular, right? The Bible talks about not following after a multitude to do evil, and, and the majority is almost always wrong. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. Abraham was a majority of one. Daniel was a majority of one. John the Baptist was a majority of one. Jesus was a majority of one, right? You don't necessarily follow the numerical majority in order to find truth or to be right. The Roman name, they'd conquered Israel in 63 B.C., almost 100 years before Jesus began his ministry. And they occupied this land, and they dominated this land, and they annexed this land into the growing Roman Empire. And their terms for this part of the world were Provincia Judea. Provincia Judea. More often, though, they used the terms Surya, like Syria, Surya Palestina. And so for the first time in history, this name began to be applied to this land, and it was based on the name of the arch enemies of Israel, the Philistines. Now, why would the Romans do that? It was just to stick a sharp stick in the eye of, of Jews, the majority of the population, and to disenfranchise them, to disconnect them, uh, to attempt to marginalize them from their land. But never did the angel, never did the gospel writer, never did... Um, the people involved in the writing of our New Testament ever buy into this. They never used any of these names, instead preferring the covenantal and biblical names for that location. And I think that that is, um, in, in some measure, significant. So what we're going to look at then is, and this term got picked up by the Britons, by the British, uh, after World War I, when they were given charge over um, the land of Israel and its neighbor to the east, Jordan. And they called it all by this uh, Roman name, Pal Palestine. That's how we get the name uh, today. Um, so let me, if I could, just to help to set a, um, a tone or the stage for how we read our Bible, both Old and New Testament, by reminding us of a few things. First of all, Jesus was Jewish. He was born of a Jewish mother. That makes him automatically Jewish whether you want to be or not. Um, and he was raised by two Jewish parents in a Jewish village called Nazareth. Uh, when he began his ministry, he called 12 Jewish disciples to be his disciples. Um, much of the New Testament is written by these guys. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, we hear that he sent out not only the 12, but he also sent out a larger group of 70, and they're all Jewish. The 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, they're all Jewish. Um, in fact, these guys that write the Bible... Old and New Testament, 40-plus authors, all of them Israelite, all of them Jewish, with the exception of the writer of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, and that is Dr. Luke, who is Greek. 
Um, the 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, they'd all come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, a Jewish festival called Shavuot, or weeks. Um, uh, later, there were more than 5,000 who came into the church, became followers of Jesus, and all these guys at Christ Community Church, Jerusalem version, they were all Jewish. Um, Jesus, when he interprets the Bible or when he's trying to support something he says by referring to the Bible, it's always to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Old Testament. And Paul and others in the New Testament do exactly the same to the tune of over 300 quotes from the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible as their source of authority. And then when we get to Paul, we hear this, these words in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it's to the Jew first and then to the rest of us. So just keep those things in mind as we recognize that we are the branches that have been the wild olive branches, as Paul says in Romans, that have been grafted into the root of the people of God as constituted by covenant in the Old Testament. Speaking of which, and this is what I want to do. I don't want to do a whole lot of talking. I want to let the Bible do the talking. And that's because of who we are. We are a people of the book. We are Protestants. We are evangelicals. And in every, practically every evangelical statement of faith, there's a preamble, a prologue at the beginning. And it says something like this. The Bible is our only rule for matters of faith and practice. You get this in the Baptist faith and message. You get the Assemblies of God statement of fundamental truths. It's in the Chicago statement, the Lausanne statement. It's all over the place. Evangelicals have confessed for years and years, 500 years, half of a millennium, the Bible is our rule for matters of faith, faith and practice. So what I want to encourage you to do, what I want to challenge you to do, is let the Bible inform what you believe and then how you live your life. You can follow the multitude. You can do what's popular. You can follow the talking heads on um, uh, network news or you can listen to the Word of God. And then when you find yourself thinking other thoughts or living in a, a, another way, then you have the opportunity to conform your life and your thoughts to the, uh, uh, to the Word of God and, to, and bring them captive to the following of Christ. So what I like to do is start at the beginning. That's what the, book of, that's what the word Genesis means, beginnings. The Lord said to Abram, I'm going to give you all of the land that you see. I'm not sure where it, okay, let's go to, there we go. All the land that you see, and I will give it to you and to your descendants. In Hebrew, it reads, Ad Olam. Forever is a good translation. You could read eternally or as an everlasting promise, but that's the point that's being made uh, by the original language, comes through very well in English. I'm giving it to you, and I'm not just giving it to you, Abraham. I'm giving it to your descendants, and I'm giving it to them. What was the word again? Uh, I, I meant the Hebrew. <laughs> Adolam, forever. Here's another text, Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant. It's basically like putting something in a lockbox. It's like making a, um, uh, putting your, uh, all of your 
the things that you own, your, your property, your investments, your, um, uh, your silver, your gold, your, your money, your bank account in trust. It locks it in place. It is handed down then to your descendants, those that you stipulate in that in trust, and they can't fritter it away, they can't, they can't um, trade it away, and, and they can't uh, sell it. It's locked in place. That's in trust. That's a covenant. And so it's an everlasting covenant. There you get that word again, Adolam. Um, and it's to your descendants after you, all of this land of Canaan that eventually comes to be renamed Israel once Joshua and crew come into and settle the land of Canaan. We get it again in the book of Genesis chapter 35, but now it's not Abraham that God is talking to. This is two generations later. Abraham, remember the patriarchs are Abraham, and then his son was Isaac, and then Isaac's son is Jacob. So three generations now have gone by, same promise, same language. Your name is Jacob, but Israel will be your name, God tells him. And so he called him Israel, and the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'm giving it to you and to your descendants who come after you. So he's referring to the fourth, the fifth, and on generation. And so then we get in Genesis 48, um, he's speaking to Jacob, is speaking, and he's telling the fourth generation, his son Joseph. He says, God said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and numerous, a company of peoples, and I'm going to give this land to your descendants after you for an ahuzat olam. It's a related phrase. Ad olam, ahuzat olam, an everlasting possession. In other words, it's in trust. It can't be given away. It can't be traded away. It can't be um, lost, stolen, accidentally misplaced or whatever. Joshua. In the book of Joshua, Moses swore on that day saying, the land, the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children, Ad Olam. Again, a different book, a different author, but you're getting the same kind of language. And it's all referring back to a covenant made with Father Abraham. You remember the one who had many sons and daughters Many sons and daughters had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. Right. You know the song. I want to, just as an example, if you want a longer treatment of this, go to First Assembly Jeff City. Uh, on their website, there's about a 50-minute thing just on these Bible passages. Tons more Bible passages. And I'm just hitting the cream of the crop here. The ones that are kind of like so clear that they just speak for themselves and I'm, I don't have to do a lot of interpreting. The Bible just speaks for itself, and I like that. Uh, so let's pick Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet of the exile. So also is his friend Ezekiel, a contemporary. And they're predicting the destruction and the captivity of the people. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. In the middle of the book of Jeremiah, by the way, the longest book in the Bible, longer than Psalms by word count. Um, and so Jeremiah chapter 31 has the new covenant prediction. God's going to make a new covenant. Jesus uses this language. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
drink all of it, right? He says at the Last Supper. It quote, is quoted multiple times in the book of Hebrews, this business of this prediction by Jeremiah of a new covenant. And, and we quickly will take these and click and drag over onto ourselves. Well, that applies just to the New Testament in our Bible, and it applies to me. But what I want you to do is I want you to look very carefully what Jeremiah says in his context back in his day. He is a prophet of the destruction and of exile, but he's also a prophet of restoration and renewal of the covenant and return to the land. He says, I'm going to build you again. You will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel, planting vineyards on the hills of Samaria, and there will be a day when watchmen in the hills of Ephraim. Do you see how geographically connected, oriented that this prophecy is? We can take it and apply it because Jesus does it and so does Hebrews. But there's another application and it's happening in the land, with the land. They will be saying in the hills of Ephraim, let's go up to Zion, a nickname for Jerusalem, to the Lord our God. The remnant of Israel will return here. So yes, he's a predictor of exile and destruction, but he's also a predictor of restoration and return to the land, and not just any land. You know, in 1947, when the, um, and some of us remember these days, had a birthday this past week. Um, in 1947, when the United Nations was considering a homeland for the Jewish people, they actually thought about Paraguay in South, Af South America. And then they also taught, uh, thought about the possibility of Uganda on the continent of Africa as a homeland for the Jewish people. But they said, no, there's a history, there's a background, there's heritage, there's biblical warrant for allowing them to return to the land of their ancestors. And that's the reason why there is an Israel today, that the United Nations voted them into existence in 1947. So they will return not just any old where, not to Paraguay, not to Uganda, but rather to the land where we, that we call Israel today, the one that we flew into and just returned from. For I'm, Jeremiah continues, I'm a father. I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. They'll come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, not Paraguay, not Uganda, and your children are going to return to their own territory. It always has amazed me it's, it, to me, it's been ironic when I read in uh, academic works or in the newspaper or whatever uh, uh, charges about modern Israel that they are colonialists. They're going to colonize. They're settlers, etc. And I'm going, I don't think so because this was originally their country. You know, we're so big into the rights of indigenous people. These are the indigenous people and have been since Father Abraham, count this, 4,000 years ago. So this, these are the kinds of things that I'm asking you to process. What I want to do is I want to equip you to think biblically um, about um, statements that are made and things that are you know, reported, said, etc. Et and I want you also to be informed and be able to have legitimate conversations with people over the water cooler, you know, across the back fence when you're playing, I don't know, bowling or at your book club or whatever. And this subject comes up. We're this is a part of the equipping process to be the body of Christ. 
Um, so now I'd like to take a look at that contemporary of uh, Jeremiah. Uh, we're not just going to try to focus in and you know, look through the keyhole and try to figure out what life is like, but look more broadly and take a look at Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah. He's living at a time that is right before the destruction and exile of God's people in 587, 586 by the invading Babylonians. Ezekiel says that I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel. He's also a prophet of destruction, but also of restoration and return to the land. I'm bringing you into the land, into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. And notice that all these guys are constantly footnoting this and anchoring it in a historical, biblical, covenantal reality. This goes back to God's promise to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Joseph and his other 11 brothers, the progenitors of the 12 tribes, etc., in Ezekiel 37, wanted to get to this one because there's a lot that's being said on uh, podcasts and on TV and Christian radio and stuff about we're in the last days. This is this is the beginning of the third you know world war and this is the end, you know it's kind of kicking off the, the, the end of time and this is Gog and Magog. Uh, Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 38. And so I just like to take a look at Ezekiel 37 and 38, but I want to I want us to notice something that in most of these podcasts and articles and you know TV radio, Christian TV and radio, that, that most of those are, are uh, that most of those guys, most of those outlets are missing. Okay, so in Ezekiel chapter 37, this is the vision of the dry bones that are, can these bones live and coming back to life? And these, uh, behold, the Lord God says to these bones, I'm going to cause breath to enter you and you're going to come back out of your graves, opened up graves. This is a, a prediction of a, a, a prophecy of the general resurrection that is going to take place at some point. But he also says, I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel and I will place you on your own land. So within this, uh, uh, yes, an end time prophecy about general resurrection, etc., there's also land promise. Even as there was in Jeremiah with New Covenant, there's a, there's a relevance to, there, there, there's a connection with the land. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last little bit of the book of Second Chronicles, we've got a ton of stuff in our Bible chronicling, telling the story of God's miraculous deliverance out of exile and bringing his people back to the land. And the reason that I even bring this up is because there are lots of people in lots of different areas, lots of different Christian groups that said, see, when, when God rejected his people and sent them into exile, that was it. They had broken the covenant. They had sinned against God and God punished them and they had their chance and it was done. I, I hope that whenever after you got saved, after you came to the Lord, you made a commitment and that at first couple of times, or maybe it was yesterday or even this morning, that you messed up and you did something that was out of character with God and, and, and that was contrary to Scripture, I hope that God didn't cut you off. And you, you better hope that too, right? And He didn't. Why didn't He? It's because He's, he's faithful, He's faithful. He's consistent. He keeps his covenant. 
There's a passage in the New Testament that says, even when we are faithless, he stays faithful because he cannot deny himself. Isn't that cool that God's like that? I'm thankful for that. But he's not just like that with you. He's always been like that. That's part of his covenant consistency, kind of consistent and eternal nature. So we get this, I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel and into your own land in the book of Ezekiel. And we don't want to stop there. We want to push the envelope a little bit and we want to do more New Testament. We've done some when we did the birth, right? We did our Advent reading at the beginning. I want to return to that and I want you to hear the words of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, he says that um, he is going to bring us in... Uh, what, wait a minute, New Testament, sorry. Um, it's hard to think. 68 now, it's totally legal. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus. If they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Truly, I say, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel before I come and confirm everything that you've said. Notice that he says the cities of Israel. He doesn't use Provincia Judea. He doesn't use Syria, Palestina. He doesn't use the shorthand version of that, just Palestina. He uses that biblical covenantal language to refer to the mission, to refer to the reality of Jews living in at a certain place. He calls it the land of Israel, the land of promise, the land of covenant, the land, that, the land of biblical language. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, uses the same kind of language. He says, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, many lepers in, the time of, in Israel in the time of Elisha. And he doesn't reuse the, the, the Roman terms, the popular terms, the legal language, uh, Provincia Judea, Surya Palestina, or just Palestina. He uses the biblical covenantal language. Um, none of those names, yeah, by the way, I you know, stole a little bit of um, the, uh, the chosen here of Romans um, oppressing uh, Jews from that TV series, The Chosen. Uh, it, it goes beyond Jesus. When we get to the first seven spirit-filled deacons chosen in the book of Acts, this, these are the words of Stephen, the, one of the first deacons. Um, he says, God gave Abraham no inheritance in this country, and, uh, and yet he promised them that, that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. New Testament. Spirit-filled deacon, divinely inspired recording by Luke in the book of Acts. Then we get uh, Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at three passages quickly uh, that Paul brings in Romans chapter 11. I want to point out that the book of Romans is written about A.D. 54. That's two and a half decades after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We're into the period of the church. The church is um, uh, born, birthed, whatever, on the day of Pentecost. This is two and a half decades later. We're on our side of the cross. And Paul asks this rhetorical question. God hasn't rejected his people, has he? May it never be. What he's recognizing is if that was the nature of God then, it could be now too. Because God doesn't change. If he rejects them, he could reject us. 
May it never be. And then he puts himself on display. I'm display, I'm evidence number one. For I too am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. And he gives the principle behind all of this. God has not rejected his people whom he has foreknown. Also in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11. God hasn't rejected his people. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Romans 9, they're the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Not only that, but the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. You notice the tense of the verb? Present tense. Two and a half decades after death, burial, and resurrection, ascension are complete. Our side of the cross so ask, where, where do these guys stand in relation to God's plan for the world, God's economy? Another passage, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are, are is that present tense too? Just checking. All right. Uh, beloved for the sake of the fathers because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't break covenant. God doesn't take back his promises. He gives and then he extends. He gives and he's merciful. And I'm grateful for that in my life. How about you? So then, since we're not going with the crowd, since we're not going just with our feelings, since we're not just spiritualizing things and clicking and dragging them automatically, everything has to apply directly to us. One of my favorite signs in the whole world is somewhere out there on Highway 65 and it says the Bible is not about you because it's about Him. We're bit players. We're servants, right? He's still Lord. So then now that we've heard the, some of the specifics of the Word, we've got it Old and New Testament. We've heard it multiple times from multiple authors and different sources of divine inspiration. Angels, gospel writers, Jesus himself, deacons, Paul, etc. Um, how do we respond? Well, the first thing that we do at any point, and it doesn't matter what the message is about, is we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, help me to conform to your image and to the dictates of your word. That, that's what we do. If, and if there's something that's out of place or out of line in our lives, irrespective of what the issue is, we want to bring that into conformity, into subjection, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. That's the kind of process that we want to engage in. That's the way we grow. That's the way we come, become more like Jesus. That's the way that we become more fruitful as we're used by God in greater and greater ways. So the first thing starts with humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to the lordship of, uh, of Jesus in conformity to his word. Um, uh, a second thing that we can do is pray. Another thing that we can do is comfort and support. Why is that? Because on the part of the, of the humbling, Paul says, if we're arrogant, let's just check that at the door first. 
And let's make sure that we understand that we are the wild olive branch that has been grafted in to this rich root that supports us. It's not we who support the root. It's the root that supports us. A second thing is when the Bible talks about praying, it talks specifically about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And this form of the, uh, of the, uh, of the verb, let me get right here. is in the imperative. It's the, in the voice of command. There's an exclamation point behind it. It's not an option or a suggestion or multiple choice where we get to pick and choose. It is a requirement, a command. The ooh on the end in yellow makes it plural and a command all at the same time. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we don't really have an option on that. Sorry. I don't have a plan B. I, I, there, there, there's no, there's no opt out. Similarly, for comfort, whatever we can do to bring comfort to this time of Jacob's trouble, there's an imperative there. You see the yellow ooh on the end. It's also plural, and it's also the voice of command. It's comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare is ended. Boy, I would love to do that. There are so many people that are yearning for that warfare to end. Can you pray toward that end? And no, you can. And then finally, there's the call to action. Vindicate the weakless, the weak and the fatherless. See the ooh on the end there? Makes it plural, makes it command. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. All imperatives. This is all God's call from his word to his body today. Would you pray with me toward that end? Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanks that your word is so clear about so many things that you do want a people that will humble themselves. Give us the grace to do that. And, and to conform ourselves to your nature and to your word. Father, we ask that you would help us in whatever way we can find, if it's attending a prayer vigil or, or whatever, to comfort your people. And Father, we also ask that you would enable us to take action, uh, to give, to donate um, of, of our means as we can when we find groups, people that are reputable. We pray that you would help us, Lord God, to deliver, to rescue those that are needy, to, to help Jacob in its time of trouble. Uh, we pray also, Lord God, that there would be peace, peace in Jerusalem, peace in this part of the world, that you would protect those that um, are in harm's way and that you would preserve innocent life created in your very image. We recognize, Lord God, that we don't have to choose sides. And we recognize that we can love, we can give, and we can pray to everybody. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to um, live out these imperatives in your word. That you would help us to have meaningful conversations as we've looked at your word and saw its imperatives. And that you would use us in our world to be light and to be salt in it and to help even in conversations that become difficult 
to generate more light than heat. Be the blessing through us to our world and empower us by your spirit to be able to engage in those kinds of difficult conversations and keep the sweet spirit of Jesus and yet knowing that we're walking according to the ways of your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful time of year, for this Advent season. Lord, we pray that you would enable us as you sent light into the world to also ourselves be light and life in our world. In Jesus' awesome name, we pray. Thank you, Lord. God bless you, CCC.